The Thought Lounge podcast is sponsored by Willow, a social networking app powered by open, honest conversation. Willow is a space where people can connect to local communities, individuals, and the world at large through open-minded conversations. You can download Willow for free on the iTunes App Store today. Welcome to the Thought Lounge podcast. You're listening to the fourth episode of our We Need to Talk series, which is about conflicting perspectives presented side by side with the utmost respect for one another. For a full bio of each guest and for more on the format and philosophy of the We Need to Talk series, listen to the first couple minutes of the first episode of this series on bias in leadership. In this episode, our guests will be answering a question on sexual violence presented by Mauro Cifuentes. I'll let him introduce himself. My name is Mauro Cifuentes. I am the youth program manager at a domestic violence nonprofit in the Bay Area, and I work with students at the middle school, high school, and undergraduate level on issues of uh, gendered and sexual violence prevention. Mauro's question was, recent news is showing a big push to hold individuals accountable for acts of sexual harassment and sexual violence. Do you think that the degree of outrage toward these individuals is justified, and will it help to prevent future harm? Or could this outrage also come from our cultural desire to punish individuals through legal and prison systems, never really getting to the roots of the problem? And what exactly are those roots? First up to explore this question is Mauro. Enjoy! So when I was thinking about how I wanted to respond to my own question, um, I realized that there were actually four questions in there. Um, I think I was a little sneaky when you asked me to come up with just one question. So I'll kind of go through them and kind of tease them out a little bit. Um, and I'll start with the with the first one. But you know, I just wanted to say, you know, first of all, that I know that I'm talking about issues of sexual violence, sexual harm, and sometimes that can be really challenging for people to listen to if that's part of their experience or part of the experience of people they really care about. So I just wanted to to make a note of that. Um, and that before I started, I, I wanted to define sexual violence or sexual harm for people because I think that lots of different folks have different definitions of that. So, you know, we've mostly been taught to think of, you know, strangers in dark alleys, you know, which is something that can happen and is horrific and terrifying and traumatic for people who experience that. And we also know that um, 80 to 90 percent of people who do experience different forms of sexual harm experience that at the hands of people that they know. So, you know, friends, dates, colleagues, family members, neighbors, partners, spouses, you know, people who in other moments may take care of us, may be good to us, may be friends of ours, there may be closeness there, but there's also the possibility of things going wrong and people experiencing violence at the hands of people who they know and might have otherwise trusted. Um, So how I think about it is I think about it in terms of, you know, a a much more inclusive definition, you know, so I just, to situate my perspective is that, you know, as a, as a violence prevention specialist, you know, I have a little bit more freedom than a lot of people who do survivor support work. So when you're doing survivor support work, what you want to do is you want to make sure that someone who's experienced harm is at the forefront 
of what you're doing and their immediate needs for psychological and physical and sexual safety are at the absolute foreground. Um, those things are obviously really important to me, and I fully support you know the people who do that work taking that approach. For me, as someone who's a preventionist, someone who's focused on prevention, part of my job is asking some of kind of the scary, dark, and ugly questions that other people either don't know how to ask, don't know that they should be asking, or are kind of afraid to. It's, it's a topic that I think we've only scratched the surface of in terms of our, our public conversations about these issues. So, um, you know, when most people hear the word violence, they easily think of, you know, physical encounters that leave cuts, bruises, broken bones. But when I think of violence, you know, my definition is a lot more inclusive. You know, it's anything that denies a person their freedom, their autonomy, their right to self-determination. So within that, it also includes forms of verbal or psychological harm or harassment that is often a big part of sexual harm or violence that we experience in U.S. culture. Um, so, you know when I think about violence with this definition, it allows me to understand, you know, how attitudes, behaviors, words, <clears throat> laws, social customs, you know, and more, you know, contribute to what we call sexual violence. So I get to look at the whole continuum of things that lead up to these really specific and you know, spectacularly violent acts. And I don't use the word spectacular in, oh, this is so amazing, but I use it in a way where it becomes a, a public spectacle, you know, where everybody is looking and trying to make sense of this um, with the limited tools that we have available to us. So, you know, and I think that kind of feeds into that. The first part of the question is, do I think that the outrage against individuals is justified? Um, I absolutely think that the degree of outrage is justified. And I think that we focus on individuals because, because that's sort of our narrative of justice, is that when something has happened and someone has been harmed, you have to find the person or maybe a couple of people responsible for it so that there can be a sense of, of closure, of retribution, of you know, punishment, of taking someone harmful out of society. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we really focus on finding individuals. Um, but we know that taking this approach hasn't helped us prevent sexual harm, that the, the levels of sexual violence have stayed the same since we started recording them in the 1970s. And if anything, because of the ways that people are now being encouraged to report, we're actually seeing more reports of sexual violence, which some people may interpret as this is happening more. Other people may interpret it as people are reporting more because we know that of all the serious crimes of you know, violent assaults, homicide, sexual violence, that sexual violence crimes are reported the least of any serious violent crime. Um, and, 
you know, our, our legal system is really only good at holding individuals accountable in a way that can sometimes really, really ignore the root causes of what's going on. If we can find an evil, deranged person who did these awful, atrocious things, then we can isolate them from society and then rid ourselves of, you know, this, this disease. And that's how a lot of people think about sexual violence and other forms of crime. But, you know, it it doesn't allow us to ask questions. You know, for example, like if a professor, you know, assaults or harasses a student, you know, it makes me, me personally, I'm, I'm a very curious person and I know a lot of people experience that moral outrage and that's where the response stops. And that's not to demonize that response, but I understand that that's, that's a socially appropriate response we've been given and we don't have any other tools to make sense of these situations. So when a professor assaults or harasses a student, for me, I start wondering like, what was this person's upbringing like? You know, what kind of messages did they get about, you know, gender and sex? Um, it makes me curious to learn about this person's peers and what kinds of attitudes those people have. What are the conversations with, um, you know, this person's uh, you know, faculty? Does he know other people who have had sexual or romantic relationships with students such that they think that that's an appropriate thing for a professor to do? You know, not acknowledging that there are huge power imbalances at play. You know, someone's a professor and someone's a student, someone's older, someone's younger, someone is further along in their life and career, someone is just starting one, you know, and that there are certain... Um, you know, both contextual to like a university, but also larger social power imbalances that make it easier for one person to exploit that relationship in a way. And this is just like a specific and small example, but it just makes me wonder about how people justify harming others or disregarding their refusals at certain, you know, sexual advances. Um, but we never get that information. We never get to ask someone who's committed these acts what, like, why, why did you do it? You know, because the way our, our justice system works is that if someone is accused of a crime, you know, they're either guilty or not guilty, which we hear is innocent, right? So now we have this, this binary between guilt and innocence where admitting any kind of responsibility in between is not just kind of socially taboo, but also puts you at risk of real legal consequences. So why would anybody reflect seriously on it? You know, that's why we see people dig in their heels and say it was consensual or it didn't happen or, you know, um, you know, this person wanted it to happen and I knew they wanted it and they're lying. They're just trying to get me in trouble. That's why we hear all those responses because I don't think that the person who has been accused of sexual violence actually believes that. I think that they're having to do this cognitive split where they, they know somewhere that what they did was not responsible or not respectful of a person's autonomy. But then there's the other half of their brain that knows what it, like all the ways that they'll be ostracized if they admit to it. So you leave people with actually no opportunity to reflect or be held accountable in a way that's actually going to change their behaviors or is actually going to change, you know, the cultural conversation. So while I do think the level of outrage around these things happening is incredibly justified, I think that it will not help us prevent these things because we really need to understand what kind of logic 
people are using when they think it's okay to, you know, cross professional boundaries or to make someone feel unsafe in their workplace or their home or at a party or wherever they may be. Um, so, you know, the outrage is wholly understandable, but it, it has not been, and I don't think will ever be effective at preventing sexual harm. So what do we do with that outrage? That's a question that I ask myself. It's like, the feelings are there, the feelings are elicited. And then, so what do we do with that? And so, you know, for me, I use my outrage, I use my upset and anger about these things happening to, to push for innovative approaches to learn how and why these things happen. You know, what shapes a person who harms other people? Um, what creates power imbalances that are so commonly exploited, you know, both between individuals and at the larger social level. Um, you know, why do we still struggle to speak frankly about sexual issues? Why do we get so nervous when they come up? You know, what does sex education in this country look like such that when these things happen, we don't have the tools to even address them in a frank way? And so that you know, makes me, I would say, a little, a little concerned because I would like to believe that, you know, that change can happen through the systems that we have, but I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that they will, and I think that there are a lot of people who are being harmed while we beat a dead horse. Um, and I know that's kind of a vulgar image, but that's, that's how it feels sometimes. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to me also that, that people who are invested in prison abolition issues, you know, people who will say that there's an over-policing of, you know, working class people, people of color, you know, over-policing of queer people and trans women and trans men and all these other marginalized groups will still have a reservation for putting people who have committed acts of sexual violence into prison and for long periods of time. And to me, it just speaks to the special place that not just sexual violence, but any kind of sexual deviance has in our our social imagination, and I think that's been a part of, you know, Euro-American culture for a couple hundred years now. Um, so it's something that we're really deeply entrenched in. Um, and so I think the third part of my question is that, you know, does change come from this desire to punish through the legal and prison systems? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it can fully address it, but I do think that because it's the only system that we have now, you know, so few people come forward. So few people who do these kinds of things are identified. So few people who commit sexual violence are prosecuted, charged, imprisoned, right? So we're already getting at such a small slice of the people who commit these forms of violence through this criminal justice system that there's got to be a better way to reach even more people. So, you know, because few people commit these acts of sexual harm, 
because are ever made known or held accountable, you know, we, we still want someone or something to blame. So when we do have these people who become these public faces of sexual violence, like Brock Turner, you know, I'm not saying that what he did was okay. I'm not saying that he shouldn't be held accountable. I'm not saying that the, the woman that he harmed, which is frustrating that I, I know his name, but I can't recall her name, you know, because it becomes this, this, this villain story in a way where I want, I don't know how to say this, um, but I think that, that people like Brock Turner on an understandable level, absorb all of the outrage from all of the people who've experienced these things who were never able to hold that person who harmed them accountable. So the outrage that we see also just isn't about that one person. It's about everything that we've experienced getting put onto this person who becomes a symbol of this form of violence. So they stop being an individual who has complicated beliefs they stop being a full they stop being a full complex person and we don't think about it from an educational perspective how is this person taught what were the 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 privileges they gained for playing out these kinds of behaviors you know we know that brock turner was like an athlete for example um you know what is sports culture like sports culture is really competitive especially at the elite college competitive level like competition is in so ingrained into this person um you know and i think that that's just one tiny facet of it but i think that there's a whole lot to be explored there and i think that we often focus on you know young collegiate people and don't ever talk about you know older folks who are perpetuating a lot of these beliefs at the institutional level you know where we we talk about individual college students college athletes largely fraternity people which obviously there are a lot of problematics in terms of you know gender and sexual violence and competition and all different kinds of things you know but these people are bred to be not bred but trained to be violent and competitive you know, and to disregard the pain of others. And I don't believe that that's something that you can compartmentalize into your athletic pursuits. But what we're never talking about is we're never talking about the fact that, you know, fraternities in this country have an, a national, they have a PAC. They have a political action committee that raises lots of money in order to block congressional legislation that would make it easier for universities to investigate um, sexual violence that happens um, on fraternity property. You know, so we focus on the young people, but we don't focus as much on the older, wealthy people who are making legislation that make it more difficult to hold people accountable, that make it more difficult to provide meaningful sex education. Um, so... Yeah, it's understandable that all the rage around these systems that make sexual violence so prevalent get focused on these few people, these few names, these few faces that we get to hold accountable because a lot of people have been affected by this issue. You know, estimates are between one out of every seven to one out of every three people, you know, have experienced sexual violence or sexual harassment or sexual harm in some form or another. So that means that when these topics are covered by the news, they become a community conversation because lots of people have experience with them or they know someone. And it brings up a lot 
for people who have received little to no support addressing their own experiences of harm. So you're just kind of, you know, pouring salt on open wounds in a way when these issues aren't covered in a nuanced way or when people aren't seeing that anything's changing. Um, and so, you know, I think the final piece of the question is, well, like, what are the root causes? And I spent a lot of, t- I spend a lot of time thinking about this. Like, this is, this is my job is to think about what the root causes are and not just to identify the root causes because we can say, oh, you know, gender norms or, oh, bad sex education, you know, but everybody's going to interpret that in a different way, right? So, you know, just to be really clear is that, you know, there are people who have been identified as more likely to commit sexual violence and there have been people who are identified as more likely to experience sexual violence and i think that some of that can be really useful for different forms of targeted education not in a minority report kind of way where you're trying to like identify perpetrators before they've ever done anything but just to understand you know in different groups what are the pressures that they experience, right? For example, you know, I was doing, you know, dating violence and sexual violence prevention education with sixth graders in East Oakland, right? And so when people think about someone who's going to be sexually violent because of, you know, racism and classism, a lot of people already picture, you know, like a working class man of color. That's been part of the U.S. imagination for a really long time is that the, the dangerous brown man, you know? And so now I find myself in a classroom where I'm going in and the teacher pulls me aside before I start my session. And the teacher is saying, you know, can you talk about, you know, how it's not okay for the boys to pressure girls into being, you know, their girlfriend? Because there's a lot of tensions, you know, across the boys and girls in my classroom. And... I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, how is this happening? Like, these are 11-year-old boys who are coming to school with this neurotic anxiety to pester the girls to, to, you know, aggressively coerce them into being their girlfriends, right? Like, this is where it starts. Like, that's, that's a really early behavior that can eventually escalate into different forms of sexual violence. And so I'm, I'm seeing this, and there's no way in my mind that I can picture an 11-year-old boy popping out of bed in the morning and thinking, like, I need to go to school and I really need to get a girlfriend. Like, I just can't imagine, I can't imagine that being, maybe something they're curious about, maybe something they see all around them through through media, through adults, and so it's, it's on their minds, but that, like, obsessive, anxiety-producing drive, like, that's not intrinsic, I don't believe. And I followed that instinct. And so I did sort of like a a little informal ad hoc survey. And so I start off the class and I say, so I've got a question. And my question is, how many of you have an older brother, older cousin, dad, stepdad, uncle, neighbor, who is telling you that right now you need to get a girlfriend because that's how you start becoming a man? Almost every little boy in that classroom raised their hand. And it was a moment of pause for me. I mean, obviously, I'm standing in front of a group of 20-something sixth graders. I can't, like, pause and mull over this. But I, it's something that I've returned to repeatedly. I mean, I'm telling you this, this anecdote now. Because 
in that moment, I know that the messages about gender that they're getting are intensely tied to their, their sexuality and how they're sexual and who they're sexual with. And so I have to respond to this survey that I've now given in the class. Like, I can't just let that sit there. And so the only things that I could think of to say, because there's no curriculum around this, but I tell them, I'm like, you know, those people who are giving you those messages, they're telling you something that they feel is really important, probably something that someone said to them. But what I need to tell you is that part of growing up and part of becoming a man means that you have to learn to tell the difference between messages that are going to serve you and messages that are not going to serve you. And that that's a really hard thing to learn how to do because these people care about you and they're trying to do their best by you, but they're giving you information that is actually making it really frustrating for your classmates, your female classmates, to be around you. And then I started going around and asking the girls, I'm like, can you talk about what bothers you about the boys asking you to be your girlfriends? And they're like, I don't want a boyfriend. Or they're like, I'm here at school to learn. Or like, I like them, but I just like them as a friend, you know? And so they're going through these reasons why they don't want a boyfriend. And so I'm telling the boys, I'm like, number one, you're assuming that these girls are interested in boys. I'm like, that's a big assumption. Some of these girls may not be interested in boys at all. Some of them who are may not be interested in boys right now or at school. It tells me that the girls are coming to school for a different reason than the boys are coming to school and that we're all making assumptions that all the people who you think are girls are going to be girls their whole lives and all the people who you think are boys are going to be boys their whole lives, you know? Trying to talk about sexuality and gender identity, not in this way we're like, okay, here's, you know, me talking about, here's the definition of, you know, homosexual or queer, and here's me talking about the definition of transgender or intersex. Like, I'm not doing that, but, you know, kind of just, like, very softly putting in their minds all the assumptions they're making. And so... I think that that anecdote speaks to a lot of the root causes. I think that that culturally we get fed these messages that, you know, you're a fully developed adult person when you have a heterosexual partner with whom you are sexual. And so there's a certain anxiety around growing up, around being seen as a full developed adult human person that young people are trying to figure out. You know, that there's also peer pressure, right? That the boys were goading one another on, that it became part of their male bonding to to egg one another on to go flirt with the girls, and that they had more conversations amongst themselves as boys about girls than they ever actually interacted with girls. So that tells me that this is predominantly also about male bonding, and that a lot of men don't know how to bond with other men unless it's mediated by their desire for women. So I think that that's that's a piece of it. And that's also carries a lot of assumptions, right? Because I think that that can also play out in spaces with gay or queer men. I think that can play out with, you know, um, queer women as well in some ways, because that's how we're taught to desire. That's like the primary framework of desire that we've been given to think about is man desiring woman, man pursuing woman. So many of our gender roles are tied up with that. You know, men are told never to take no for an answer. Women are told never to say no. You know, and I'm talking about it in a binary way, and I know that that's not how gender exists, but that's how we're taught gender. We're, we're taught gender in one of two roles. 
Um, and obviously there's, you know, nuance and complexity from people's families, but, you know, so, you know, to name some of the root causes really head on is I think that there's a, a huge need for comprehensive sex education, including learning about um, communication and consent skills. So not just this is anatomy, these are biological parts, this is how you get pregnant, this is STI prevention and pregnancy prevention, but actually how do you negotiate those really challenging moments when you want to be sexual with a person and they don't want to be sexual with you? And how do you deal with that? How do you learn how to hear no and not take it personally? And how do we make more kinds of environments and settings where people feel like they have the right to say no? Because it's not just about teaching people different ways to say no, but it's creating cultures where people can actually express what they want and need. Um, yeah, and that, like I said, we focus on young people, but what about powerful adults? You know, we now have someone who has admitted to it being okay to grab people by their genitals. That's our president, Donald Trump. You know, we have Clarence Thomas, who's been accused by, you know, handfuls of women of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And he's a Supreme Court justice. You know, so it's, it's, I do think that, you know, we need to pay attention to what's going on for young people, but we also really need to pay attention to the messages that are being sent by national role models, people who we're taught to look up to. And if those people say it's okay, they do it, they laugh it off, they get fancy jobs, you know, and are never held accountable, that sends really powerful messages to people, really powerful messages. Um, um, so I also think that, you know, when we change our definitions of rape and sexual assault to be inclusive of the ways that different kinds of bodies can experience these things that also helps us understand how more people are impacted by it so for example recently a national survey about sexual violence was sent out and they added in a new category of a physical act that could count as a sexual assault and that act was being made to penetrate someone with hands with a penis with you know other body parts and they found that when they added in that definition, they found that these anonymous surveys reached parity between men and women who were essentially confessing on this survey to having experienced sexual assault. And so what that tells me is that there are lots of people who are experiencing these things, including lots of men who are experiencing sexual violence, who have no place to make sense of it or talk about it. We know that women report sexual violence more than men do, you know, and this isn't to say that, you know, we meet, we need to have, um, you know, more attention paid to men than women. That's not what I'm saying. I think there needs more attention to be paid to this issue in general, including all the different groups of people that experience these forms of harm. So I think that we need to also think about it outside of the exclusive framework of a man harming a woman, right? And that these things happen all the time in queer communities, that men harm men, men harm trans people, women harm women, women harm trans people, trans people harm trans people, trans people can harm women and men. And so it's not just about deciding which genders are the victims, but it's about understanding how different gendered groups 
internalize their experiences of victimization and then play out those cycles of violence on other people with different social effects. We know that it was legal for a man to rape his wife until the 1970s. That was on the books, is that it was, you couldn't charge a husband with spousal rape, you know? So I, I think that there's, there just, there's a lot more history we need to understand about the laws that have held these things in place. There's a lot more history we need to understand in terms of how shifting expectations around gender and sexuality have contributed to these things. And I also think we need to look at how the tools that we've used for the past 40 to 50 years to try to prevent these kinds of, you know, these kinds of sexual violence aren't doing what we need to do. So we really have to, I don't want to say get past that moment of outrage, but that we really need to experience that outrage and put it somewhere really useful. So, yeah. That was Mauro Cifuentes. Next up is Brian Kim. I'll read the question one more time just to give you a reminder. Recent news is showing a big push to hold individuals accountable for acts of sexual harassment and sexual violence. Do you think that the degree of outrage toward these individuals is justified and will it help to prevent future harm? Or could this outrage also come from our cultural desire to punish individuals through legal and prison systems, never really getting to the roots of the problem? And what exactly are those roots? Yeah, but it's, I don't. I don't mean to say that. In that, I'm. I, I'm. I'm. I'd like to say that I'm repulsed by acts of sexual violence. But I think that maybe that being aware of the fact that you're capable of it might actually help you to do it, to not do it. Um, Like, I I think that people, whenever most males, they see, uh, in the news, they see um, sexual harassment. And there's this, for me, there's this immediate, firstly, there's this immediate, like, moral superiority thought um, where it's like I would never do that and I never have done that so fuck that guy but then immediately afterward it's like but would I am I capable of it and I think everyone thinks that maybe the reason it happens is because we're not thinking seriously about whether we're capable of it and but I don't know. I'm thinking of, you know, that Stanford case with the swimmer? Um, like raped a girl, like in public on a, lawn, on a lawn or something. And there was another Stanford student and his friend who, who, found, who found the woman. Um, and one of the guys had, one of the guys who found them had, apparently he had, he was... He was moved to tears by by this woman, the state of this woman. And this isn't to I, I don't think that those those tears that his being moved is an indication of how um, repulsed or how um, how alien that is to him. I don't know. I mean, I'm not that guy, but I kind of think that. I would also be moved like that guy was. But I think moved in part 
by the knowledge that I am also capable of those of those kinds of acts. Does that does that make sense? And that I'm that and that we're all well. I'm close. You know that the Stanford the swimmer. He, you know he he's not an alien or he's not he's not an evil person. Uh, I don't know what his what his thought process was like, but. I think we're all capable of that. That was Brian Kim. Next up is Justin Brooks. Yeah, I think the first part of it is true that um, that there is an increased outrage towards sexual harassment, sexual violence. Um, and I think it's appropriate that there is. But the tougher question is what we do about it. And one of the fundamental problems with our prison system is it has no imagination. We've been punishing people the same way now for thousands of years. And we basically lock them up somewhere away from society. And it's almost like if you have a a child um, and they steal a cookie from a cookie jar and you say, you shouldn't have stolen that, go to your room for an hour. And then that child goes and kills his sister and you say, you shouldn't have killed your sister, go to your room for five million hours. It's exactly the same punishment with just increasing the length. So there's so little imagination to it that it can't possibly be effective. So just I challenge it on its basis that the prison system at at its root even makes any sense. So and particularly with sex crimes, this is true, because when you look at there's all kinds of different levels of crimes, there's kind of there's economic crimes that you can get people to stop doing just if they have money. Right somebody's making some money in a good job, then they're not going to go steal stuff. There's crimes that come from addiction, that if people aren't addicted, then they're not going to do these crimes either. They've got a horrible drug addiction, they've got to steal money for the drugs, and they continue doing drug-related crimes. You have the, the pure kind of sociopathic, really demented kind of crimes, which is a very small percentage of people in prison. The, the, the people who do the, the true sociopaths who, who just do violent act of a violent act. And I've dealt with some of these guys on death row who, you know, have killed 20, 30 people, that kind of behavior. We're just thinking, we just need to keep this person away from society and forever. And then you have these sex crimes and, and sexual assaults. And if you look to the root of them, the response, it, it's really not a crime of sex. It's a crime of violence, right? It really falls into the category of crimes of violence. And yet we do these remedies that look at it like it's a crime of sex, like chemical castration. When you chemically castrate somebody to punish them for rape, and this person was already so angry with women that he was out raping women, you're just going to make that person angrier. That doesn't get to the root at all of the behavior. Um, when you look at sexual abuse cases and people that are child molesters, I mean, there's something that needs to be remedied there and dealt with, and the incarceration isn't going to deal with it at all. So if you're putting somebody in prison for this period of time and saying, okay, now you're cured, they're not. So... We really got to look at kind of, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? There's supposed to be a correction system, not a warehousing system. And if we really want it to be truly corrections, then what we got to do is look at what do we need to do to correct this behavior? And our country is doing a terrible job of it. When you look at Scandinavian countries, how they really do look at the crimes and think about remedies in response to it, they do a much better job. 
Now, a lot of people here just look at them and say they're soft, look at them, they're taking sailing lessons, they, they live in these nice dorms. But they have a philosophy of the time you're with them in corrections, they're going to spend all that time trying to make you into a better person, not just keeping you there. And, and we don't think about that at all. Um, sexual harassment, I think, is, a, is another topic. I don't think, know if it's worthy of our correction system being involved in it. It seems certainly worthy of us improving our educational system and, and doing something about the, the just insane use of social media to just say whatever somebody wants. I mean, there's been this, for me, being you know 51 years old, so living in a time before social media, it's only the most aggressive guy at a party that would say the kinds of things that you can just that are littered in your Facebook feed now. You weren't exposed to this level of kind of, you know, just horrendous, off the cuff, no accountability kind of things that were said. So we do have to address this as a society. It has to ultimately have some kind of impact, and I'm pretty sure it's negative. That was Justin Brooks. Last up is Lori Sulpizio. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say the answer, I think, is a yes to both. Um, I think it is justified, especially, you know, sexual crimes. Um, you know, if we can't feel safe in our bodies, you know, if we can't think that our own home, our body is, is safe, then, you know, what, what else can, can be kind of safe and sacred. And so when that gets violated, I think it is, it's outrageous. Um, and certainly as a mother, you know, of, of sons, but of a daughter, it's, you know, it, it is, it's a fear of, you know, that people have the capacity and even this kind of the, the wherewithal, I suppose, to do those kind of crimes. So I think totally justified. Um, and I think then we end up wanting to hold people accountable as individuals and maybe scapegoat a little bit of the deeper roots, as, as he's saying, on the, the perpetrators and the people that are committing these crimes, and we aren't getting at the root of the problem. And I think it, again, it's having the conversation as to what is it about this dominance of one over another and this lack of respect for other people's bodies, you know, that would um, kind of occur for these crimes to be committed, you know, kind of so, so widespread and being on, working on a college campus, it's a huge issue, you know, and so how can we talk about what is happening? Um, and I know men also are victims of sexual abuse statistics would show women more, especially on college campuses. So what is it that is going on? What's that dynamic about men, young men, you know, victimizing young women? I mean, what, what is it? Can we talk about that? And can we sit down maybe with some of these people that have, have committed these crimes and say, walk us through this. You know, we need to understand. Was it out just alcohol? Was it drugs? Was it peer pressure? Like, help us understand so we can maybe put in things to prevent it. Um, and I think, again, it's an ugly, uncomfortable conversation, but I don't think we're willing to have them. You know, it's similar to what I talked about with the election and having conversations with the other. So can I sit in front of somebody who does the most heinous thing in the world, you know, like rape a woman and have a look you in the eye and know that you're a human and say, can you talk me through what happened? Because I think if maybe if we understand from your perspective, maybe we, we can learn something. Um, who really wants to do that? I mean, it almost kind of makes, you know, like that's stupid. Just thinking about it, I have a reaction, right? But I think 
that's the place that we need to go if we want to get at the roots is really understand what's going on, you know, and can we acknowledge perhaps the dynamic and with women, like, and I don't want to say what's your role in blaming a victim, but for us to realize that it's, you know, what is everybody's role? You know, how can we look at everybody's role truly and honestly and openly and try to get at the roots? I don't think we want to have those conversations. That was Mauro Cifuentes, Brian Kim, Lori Sulpizio, and Justin Brooks on the root causes of sexual violence and the effectiveness of ways in which we treat the individuals who commit acts of sexual violence. The poser of the question today was Mauro. After my interview with him, I asked him what the corniest joke he knows is. He told me this. The only one that I can honestly think of, this is really sad, um, is um, Stephen Colbert was doing this interview about like raising kids and how important it is to like raise kids with a sense of humor. And so he talked about practicing jokes with his daughter when she was really small. And one of his favorite jokes of hers was, um, you know, he, she said, she, she said to him, she was like, what did, what did the bear say? And he goes, uh, I don't know, what did the bear say? And she said, wolf. And Stephen Colbert says, well, why does the bear say wolf? And she goes, because he'd swallowed a dog. Next week's question is presented by Brian Kim, writer for California Magazine. He asks, is it environmentally moral to be an American? How about in regards to American foreign policy? Thank you for listening to this episode of the We Need to Talk series. Conflicting perspectives presented side by side with the utmost respect for one another. Our mission is to foster the practice of intentional, in-person dialogue within ourselves and our communities, in which we listen to each person as if they are the most important person in the world, suspend initial judgment, recognize that creative conflict is good, speak authentically, and practice equity of voice. For more information or to print out a wallet-sized version of the Five Agreements of Dialogue, visit thoughtlounge.org forward slash podcast. And until next time, good thinking always.